I'm David Torsivia. I'm Daniel Forkner. And this is Ashes, Ashes, a show about systemic issues, cracks in civilization, collapse of the environment, and if we're unlucky, the end of the world. But if we learn from all of this, maybe we can stop that. The world might be broken, but it doesn't have to be. So Daniel, I put together something special to start this uh, episode. In episode 33, That's we're getting pretty high up there. I'm, I'm proud of us so far. We haven't missed a week yet, so that's exciting. Yeah. Uh, so I want to celebrate by making this episode the most expensive piece of media ever created by mankind. Oh, wow, David. I mean, I, I knew that you had an artistic and a creative side, but this is something I was not expecting. I'm excited. <laughs> Yeah, you sound, you sound really shocked. Aren't you going to ask uh, how? Like, what is it that we're going to do with, with this? I mean, the movies, they're getting up there, $300 million, $400 million to make a movie, whatever it is these days. Like, uh, that, that's a big thing to live up to. Wait, so how are, how are you calling your own piece of artwork, David, the most expensive media piece? I mean, isn't value kind of, uh, doesn't that come from? No, I'm not, I'm not even talking about like, this is, I mean, every single work we create is very obviously priceless. And, but I'm not even talking about it in that context. I'm talking raw dollars that we're supposed to pay somebody else because of what I'm about to do. Well, hold up, David. <laughs> I feel like as your co-host, I should, uh, I should, I, I have the right Where? to agree. Yeah. You and me, we're on the hook for this. Okay, no, it's it's uh, it, at this point the ship has sailed. We're already going for this. It's not. You mean we have to pay for your artwork? One billion dollars. Oh my! This God, is going to be the ashes, ashes. One billion dollar. I veto. This is the ashes, ashes. One billion dollar episode extravaganza. Are you ready? I veto. Because the ship has sailed. Here we go. Ready? One. Oh God. Two. David, I, I honestly, I'm a little disappointed. I, I feel like if I've got to pay a billion dollars, I feel like I should have gotten more out of it. That's all. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, we're definitely feeling a little bit uh, gypped on this, but maybe that's the point of what I'm trying to do here. Like, aren't you going to ask what exactly you just heard? What makes it sound like that cost one billion dollars? Yeah, David, what was that and why, why is it so expensive? Well, Daniel, that leads us to the topic of today's episode. This is something we've been working on for a while. It's a personal pet of mine. And at first, it might sound boring, but that noise will prove that it's anything but. Because this is the episode on IP. And what you just heard is 4,000 extremely popular, extremely copyrighted songs overlaid on top of each other. Each one Valuable up to a $250,000 fine for our illegal use of them right now, violating the copyright owners of those songs. So 4000 times $250,000, and oh, we might be on the hook for $1 billion. So this is payback, David, for all the episodes in the past where we've wanted to add maybe something from YouTube or add a piece of media that might add value to the show. But I stopped us because, wait, David, that's copyrighted and we don't want our show to be flagged for some kind of copyright violation. So that's right. So here we are. You just went ahead and, and did the, the most you could possibly. I just got do. them all out of the way at once. Every single possible copyright violation is done. But it really highlights the ridiculous nature of modern intellectual property law, of copyright, of patents, of all these things that we're going to explore throughout this episode. But to really understand how we got into this place, where the act of downloading and listening to a song that you don't have the rights to could trigger a fine of a quarter million dollars for something that you could, I mean, buy for 99 cents, is really an interesting journey and has interesting effects on our entire culture, 
how we interact with the idea of property, of art, of creativity, and even the effects on the economy, our health, and much more. David, real quick, I don't know as much about intellectual property rights as you do, but I did a little bit of research for the show, and I think I understand the basic premise of what the purpose is. So let me run that by you real quick. Okay, yeah. Educate me, Daniel. So I am an author, and I want to write a book. But there's a problem. Um, I don't want to write a book if someone is going to be able to just copy me and then make money off of it. So in order for me to be incentivized to go ahead and write the next great American novel, I need to know that after I write this book, I'm going to be protected, no one can rip me off, and I can make a little bit of money from it. But on the flip side of that, if I am given too much protection and if my rights are too broad, such that it prevents the ability for people to share the information that I create or to disseminate this idea, well, then society does not benefit. Other people are locked out of creating similar things and everyone is harmed at my expense. Therefore, we need an equation or some kind of legal framework that balances these two interests. We need to provide some kind of incentive for me to create my fabulous work and thus give something to society. But we also need to strike a balance so that society can then benefit even more from this work by sharing it and, for lack of a better word, innovating. Does that sound about right, David? Yeah, more or less. So modern interpretations of copyright are, without this, people could steal anything we create. And if you steal something that somebody creates, well, then you have no reason to create it in the first place because it's just going to be gone. You can't profit off it. You can't live off a creation that's so easily stolen, so why would you waste time or opportunity cost, if I'm the soulless economist in this scenario, bothering to create things? Does it make sense? There's no financial incentive there. So therefore, without the financial incentive that copyright or IP guarantees, then we can't have creativity and innovation. That's how we interpret it now. But it wasn't always exactly like that, though the original terms of this very much are still in these ideas, though they've mutated over the past couple decades, especially in the latter part of the 20th century. But maybe we should jump way back into the time before copyright. So there was a time before copyright. Yes, and we haven't always assumed everything we created, uh, an idea, a piece of art, by the mere act of creation, became a piece of property to be protected from stealing to be only shared in certain specific ways that are guaranteed to profit me. No, there was a time when we would create without any sort of impetus. We would create because we had to, because we need to. And I'm going to argue throughout this episode that this really hasn't changed. But this was the way that we lived throughout most of human history. And creation was a little bit different. There were less people that could write if you were an author. There were less people that could do art because you were busy trying to live a life outside of that. But the creation has always existed, and that has never gone away. The only thing that changed was how we defined what those products that we create are. And that went from, this is something I made, to this is something that I own. Interesting. So so what was the world like before the creation of modern intellectual property rights? So the idea of modern copyright really started getting its start with the invention of the printing press. And briefly before that, I mean, we had a lot of copying of sacred texts, of important texts, of, of scientific texts. And this was mostly done by scribes, sponsored by wealthy people, creating books for wealthy people or for organizations like the church or various courts for kingdoms. But it was something that was just expected. Well, David, let me interrupt you real quick. I mean, I know that a lot of modern inventions and a lot of progress in the field of science 
art, philosophy. A lot of it came from actually members of the Church of England back in the Victorian area. And maybe that's something we can talk about. But I want to interrupt your narrative real quick because you mentioned the printing press came onto the scene before modern copyright. And maybe that's part of the reason why we need modern copyright, right? Is because those scribes you're describing that had to labor intensely to copy texts because it was so hard to do and it required a massive education. I imagine there wasn't a lot of plagiarism going on in the first place. Well, actually, it's interesting for a number of reasons. And I think one of the biggest one was the conceptual change that happened with the idea of copying. Because before this, uh, there were, like I said, copies. Scribes would make them, but they were imperfect. Sometimes they would misalign. They would be individual pieces of art, each one unique slightly from each other, if only because a different hand wrote each version of whatever text it was. It was illuminated in different ways. And though it was a copy, it was a copy in the same way that a calf comes from a cow. It's a little bit different. You can see it's related, but it's not exactly the same. And in fact, this was the defense that was used in one of the first recorded battles over copyright. Battles? Yeah, quite literally a battle. This happened in early ancient Ireland between a king over this religious document. I don't want to get too deep into it, but somebody took this important document and made a copy of it and insisted it belonged to some group. And then the king said that, no, it doesn't, just like a calf belongs to the cow that birthed it, this copy of the document belongs to the original document as well. Just because it's a copy doesn't mean it's liberated that someone else can take it. And of course, one side disagreed, another side said that, no, that's not right. And they fought an actual battle over it, and over 3,000 people died. This was in like 555 to 561 AD, give or take, depending on what source you're looking at here. But I mean, this is like at the, at the very beginning, people were literally fighting battles and dying over the idea of who owns what in this copy. Well, David, if I get a billion dollar bill in the mail as a result of your media piece at the beginning of the show, I might want to go to battle myself. <laughs> yeah, wars have been fought for much less than that. That is absolutely for sure. Um, but like I said, everything changed with the invention of the printing press because how we thought about copies changed. No longer were they slightly different from the hands of different people, unique to whatever scribe created it, but these copies, not only were they cheap to make, not only were they quick to make, but they were exact, perfect copies. And that changed the name of the game, at least conceptually. But then, David, the printing press, again, came onto the scene and took the practice of copying text, like you mentioned, which was previously very difficult to do, and made it very easy. And all of a sudden, you have a liberalization of knowledge and information where ordinary people can now get their hands on these very important works of literature, philosophy, religious texts, or whatever it is. Yeah, the press was a huge shift in power from this very small educated intellectual class and especially the church and put it in the hands of anybody who could afford one of these copies, which while still expensive was so much less expensive than the very valuable books that would come out of these scribes. And, of course, this also meant that sometimes knowledge that people didn't want out there was being printed. So heretical texts, things that they thought were maybe blasphemy, or things that the various kings didn't want people to read at the time. Or like the 95 theses that Martin Luther wrote, printed out and nailed to the front of his church. Exactly. It was a big time of upheaval, driven by the easy access of this knowledge. And just like the creation of walls and borders created smuggling, or the creation of money really emphasized the creation of theft, well, the creation of the printing press introduced censorship in ways that we had never before seen. And so the very first laws introduced of IP, a property of ideas, were in fact licensing laws introduced by churches and the royal courts of the various countries at the time in order to limit what presses were allowed to print. 
So they were official texts of banned books, of books that were allowed, and you would pay licensing fees to these various organizations in order to be able to print at all, to have the permission to make these copies. And this was all motivated about keeping texts that people saw as unwanted out of the hands of everyone. Okay, real quick, uh, set me straight on how licensing works. So today, if I write a novel, I license it to the publisher. Is that true? But it sounds like in the past, the publishers were licensing the rights to print something that is already available. Well, it varies quite a bit, and it varied from nation to nation. And it varies today from what kind of media it is, what country you're in. And at the time, it varied quite a bit, depending on what type of specific methodology that the royal courts of these various places have put into effect. But the basic idea was somebody would have a text that they wrote, they would send it to the church or the court, and the court would approve it or not approve it, and then would grant licensees to print this to the various printing presses who would pay for the ability in order to be able to print things at all. And if you violated this this tax basically to print, then you could be shut down oftentimes with force and violence. And this idea of licensing printing presses carried out for many hundreds of years was part of the contention that happened here in the United States during the American Revolution, as well as many places across the world. And there's always been a sort of competition between the forces of the state, whatever state that is at the time, and those who are trying to publish information or knowledge or profit off the publication of this content. And this back and forth between the two eventually led to a modernization of these licensing issues because it was too hard to constantly approve or disapprove certain content. And also there was a competition between creators of the content, the publishers, the courts, the church, and it was it, it got complicated. So in 1710, England modernized everything with the introduction of the Statute of Anne. And this is the first piece of copyright legislation introduced in the West that really defined the idea of what intellectual property is, what it's trying to do, and gave us our modern notion that we still have with us today, along with some concepts borrowed from the French, which we'll get to in a little bit. And so the Statute of Anne declared that any peasant who copies a piece of work will be required to pay a 250,000 coin fine. <laughs> No, not exactly. It took us uh, a couple hundred years to get to a point where we started punishing people like that. And actually, the Statute of Anne at the time was instead not something introduced to punish people for copying, but instead to liberate the presses. Because at the time, copying had been sort of concentrated down into this monopoly of printers called the Stationer's Company. And the Stationer's Company had ended up controlling basically all the licenses and ability to print books. And consequently, because they had this monopoly, the books they printed were very expensive, uh, there wasn't much access to them, and they controlled most of the rights associated with these books and not the people who created them or the government or anything like that. And so the Statute of Anne was a reaction against this to try and return power from the publishers to the creators. And so the full title of this act was, quote, an act for the encouragement of learning by vesting the copies of printed books in the authors or purchasers of such copies during the times therein mentioned. Okay, so that's a mouthful. Well, that's very interesting. And I don't want to steal your thunder and jump ahead. But I mean, that's very different from the type of copyright protection we have today, where we tend to think of it as functioning as a way to basically preserve monopolies. And it sounds like the statute of Anne was trying to basically prevent what we have today. Yeah, exactly. And, and we'll get to why this happened in just a little bit. But this was really a reaction against the censorship and the licensing ability. It was a reaction to try and fix this very restricting legislation they had accidentally created out of fear of these heretical works of, of, of the need to censor things and try and return some power back to people who wanted just to create. And so the basic idea that it boils down to is that when you published a book, you were allowed to be the sole publisher for 14 years. 
And then if wanted, the author could expand that uh, limit publication time at additional amount but, and then grant that to the publisher, but it did not by default belong to the publisher. So this means for 14 years, the publisher had a monopoly on this specific printing, but after that, anybody can make a copy of it and distribute it as they saw fit. It also granted a 21 years of protection for any book that was currently in print. And so everyone was happy for 14 or 21 years, and then 21 years started coming up and the book publishers realized that their big source of money This monopoly on the books that they had been printing for, at this point, many decades was about to end. And soon anybody could make copies of these books and the prices of the books that they were selling were going to crash, maybe bankrupt them. And even though this meant that they were going to spread knowledge and education to all the people who wanted to read these books but couldn't afford it, they were more concerned about protecting their profits. So this set off something called the Battle of the Booksellers. And this could be by its own episode, this super interesting history, but it culminated in this court case called Donaldson versus Beckett in 1774. I'm guessing that the booksellers who read military tactics did a better job than the booksellers that focused on literature. I don't know, Daniel. (laughs) The 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 readers of Sun Tzu. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Anyway, Donaldson versus Beckett in 1774, and there was a lord called Lord Camden who was trying to defend the rights of authors and creators, and was eventually able to convince people that this is the right way to do it. Not to support the book publishers, which was everyone's initial um, instinct. And he had this quote, and I just want to read this because I think it really well summarizes what the early ideas of intellectual property and copyright were supposed to be. And so I'm going to paraphrase this slightly, but these are more or less quotes that he said. All our learning will be locked up in the hands of the book publishers of the age. Booksellers would be able to set upon books whatever price they pleased till the public became as much their slaves as their own hackney compilers are. This perpetuity, now contended for in the extension of copyright, is as odious and as selfish as any other. It deserves as much reprobation and will become as intolerable. Knowledge and science are not things to be bound in such cobweb chains. Tell that to modern academic journals, David. Daniel, I can really feel that you're just raring to go later on in this episode off on the way that copyright has interacted with us today. And we're going to get there, I promise. But I just want to get a little bit of this history out of the way so we understand how we got here in this first place. So, uh, I mean, this was all going on in England at the time. Similar things started happening across Europe, the very slow development of copyright and the ideas of intellectual property and patents at the same time. Well, David, I actually have a concrete example. And I know we've been talking about books and how intellectual property has been applied to information, I guess, in terms of text on a page. But intellectual property really applies to so many different things. And I want to bring up an example from Europe in the 18th century, and that's James Watt. Many of you probably learned in grade school about how James Watt invented this steam engine. And he applied for a patent for his steam engine in 1768 and eventually extended his patent to 1800 with the help of a rich friend who had some influence in parliament. And an interesting side note, Edmund Burke actually got up on the floor of parliament and argued against allowing James Watt to extend his patent, saying that it would result in unfair monopoly and all this. But you know, David, what I think is really important about the steam engine story is that during the life of Watt's patent, Most of his time was spent either enforcing the patent or acquiring new ones to block innovation from other inventors. So there was not a lot of innovation or even production of steam engines during the time that Watt had a monopoly on the design. But once the patents expired, production of steam engines in the UK skyrocketed by 4,300% per year and fuel efficiency of steam engines quintupled. 
But wait a second, Daniel, that sounds for a second like uh, maybe the application of this intellectual property law in this example that you're giving instead hurt the innovation that it's supposed to be fostering in the first place. The ideas that were originally introduced by the Statute of Anne, where this introduction of intellectual property was supposed to encourage the development of arts and science. You're telling me instead that this IP might have set back the production of the steam engine and the corresponding development of the Industrial Revolution in the UK by as much as 30 years? Oh, well, yeah, David. Actually, that's one of the reasons I brought up James Watt, because I, I feel like when you look at the history of the steam engine and the way that he used this patent system to protect his monopoly, it really did set back the Industrial Revolution enormously, which we can get into. Well, we'll get into that in a moment. So quickly, though, I want to turn our attention to France before we explore the Industrial Revolution and how this played out. Um, and and I, know, I know this is a lot of history, listeners, but bear with us. I promise it's going to be worth it because France in particular is so important in our modern understanding of copyright because a lot of the ideas that we have about copyright emerged from this French conception of protecting the author instead of protecting the work. And uh, the combination of this with the ideas set down in the Statute of Anne is what really defined modern copyright through today. And the basic idea of this is, is that copyrights weren't going to be protected just solely in a fixed amount of years after the creation of it, but would instead be protected for the length of the author's life, plus an additional amount of years. And the idea behind this was that authors are paying something valuable to society. They're contributing culture to us. And so consequently, we, as consumers of this culture, as members of this society, need to return something to these authors in this form, the licensing ability of their works. And so by extending this piece of work throughout the author's life, plus additional few years for their heirs to inherit, we are guaranteeing that we are repaying the author for their contributions to their society by giving them the ability to license their work during this time as they see fit. And so this really created the idea that not only is intellectual property about protecting the piece of work, but also the creator behind that work and making sure that they're protected throughout their life, plus an additional period of time after that. And once this period expired, then this piece of work went into something that they called the um, permission simple, which was like an early form of public domain, which means anybody could copy it as they saw fit. David, I, I keep trying to jump ahead on you, but you mentioned France and this idea that copyright protection was a way for society to give back to artists. I feel like that's one piece of it. But today we see a lot of the justification behind copyright protection being that it's the only way to incentivize creation in the first place. Right. That's so much of the argument here is that by protecting the author, we incentivize them. It's the only way they're going to create. So not just are we rewarding them, but also we're bringing about that creative work in the first place. Well, I mean, that is jumping ahead a little bit, but I think it's very related to these concepts that came out of the French idea, where if you can't guarantee that someone is able to survive off the production of their work, then they're going to find some other job to do in their life. They're, they're going to, instead of focusing on the creation of art, of books, or of inventions that they may never see the profit of, are instead going to end up some sort of work that they can guarantee their income and, and pursue that instead. And we lose out on art and culture because of that reason, or that was the idea anyway. Yeah, maybe that was the idea, David, but you did mention France. And so I have to bring up this example because I think it's so fascinating. But, you know, when you think about Switzerland, one of the main areas that they're known for is being a global leader in the pharmaceutical and chemical industries. And Switzerland actually didn't even have a viable patent system to address the chemical and pharmaceutical industries until 1907. But prior to that, other countries, especially France, did have a strong patent system to address these industries. And 
many French chemists and scientists thought that it hindered their ability to work. And so they actually immigrated to Switzerland for the express purpose of setting up a business in an environment that had no hindering patent protection. And so a lot of scientists and chemists from France brought their knowledge, they brought their money and their business partners, and they set up these specialty dye houses and other factories in Switzerland. And this is what created the very foundation upon which the modern Swiss chemical and pharmaceutical industries were built on, which I bring up because it kind of goes against that idea that you need this protection in order to incentivize this this work. But that's something we can get into a little bit more later. There's so many examples. Well, actually, Dan, I think this is a good point instead to discuss some of this Wild West frontier that was going on at the time in various nations around the world of respecting copyrights, not respecting copyrights, respecting patents, ignoring patents, and this uh, lack of global cooperation. Because a lot of these copyright ideas of IP existed only within the confines of whatever state enforced them. And if your state didn't have these IP laws, well, then you could operate in this Wild West of creating and copying content, especially content from other nations. You bring up a really good point, David, about how copyright protection, if it doesn't extend across borders, kind of loses its function in a way. And this was felt by a lot of English creators who felt stymied by the American markets. Because in the United States, for the longest time, we did not honor intellectual property rights of any foreign person. And so Charles Dickens was one of the most famous criticisms of the American system. He felt that he was losing out on sales for his very important works by all these plagiarizers in America from whom he could not receive any compensation or any legal recourse. But then once he discovered that he could just tour the country and and do live readings of his books in America and make a fortune that way, I think he stopped criticizing it as much. (laughs) Just like happened in the modern music industry, which we'll get to later on. Yeah, exactly. And and there's other examples of this. Gilbert and Sullivan, the famous duo that wrote many comedic operas, they tried to figure out a way to get around this. And one of the ways they did that is by publishing their works in America first and doing tours of their musicals in America before releasing them in London, that way ensuring they wouldn't miss out on that initial revenue from production of their plays. And it also resulted in some innovation for America's economic development. So there was a man named Samuel Slater. He came to America in 1789, and he would become known as the father of the American Industrial Revolution. He created the United States' first textile mills, and he did so from the designs of British mills that he had memorized before leaving England at the age of 21. And he memorized them, of course, because it was illegal at that time to export factory designs from Britain. And because of this, he was referred to in the UK as Slater the Trader. It's kind of awesome. Yeah. I mean, the American economy owes much to this man who basically broke the law to bring us information and knowledge and boost our economy. But this idea of ignoring patents, copyright, and general IP law to grow the economy isn't unique to the United States. In fact, it's a pattern. It occurs in almost every country shortly before and oftentimes a little bit after they first introduce IP legislation for their state. There's a growing academic consensus that much of the industrial growth that turned the disparate warring kingdoms of pre-Germany into the powerful modern state that we think of that led to ultimately, eventually, both world wars, was the ability of them to totally ignore copyright law. At the time when the UK was very heavily enforcing their copyright, making sure that only certain people were able to distribute books, book printing exploded in Germany. 
largely because many of these books were published without the permission of the original authors. But authors didn't actually care. They saw a lot of money that they were making from this process because while in the UK, they were printing very expensive books only for the wealthy, publishers in Germany realized that they could print both a hardcover, fancy edition book to appeal to the wealthy and low-cost paperback books to distribute to people who couldn't afford necessarily a high-quality book, couldn't afford the licensing fees. But if you made an unlicensed cheap copy, they could afford however much that costs, a very small amount, and were happy to buy it. And so people built their own personal libraries like this. You saw reading explode across the country, and Germany became known as a nation of readers. And these books weren't all just literature, but a huge amount were scientific and industrial books. How to farm better, how to create dams, how to build steam engines, all sorts of things that really kicked their industrialization into high gear. And within a couple of decades, with the free distribution of this knowledge, you saw the German economy transform from this very basic agrarian state into this powerful industrial nation with huge amounts of factory capacity that placed it as the leader of industry in Europe, probably through today. Yeah, many historians now believe that a big source of Germany's modern development was this proliferation of knowledge and education, which itself, of course, was fueled by a total lack of copyright protection, resulting in this unprecedented distribution of books. In 19th century England, for example, around 1,000 works were produced annually, whereas Germany was producing 14,000. And like you mentioned, a lot of these works were more technical or academic. This is the craziest thing I've ever read. There was a German author who published a manual on leather tanning in 1806, and this author earned more money than the author who wrote the novel Frankenstein. And this played out for decades very successfully. We saw this huge amount of growth in Germany. But ultimately, as German industrial power increased and its corresponding economic power increased, you saw them introduce stricter and stricter copyright laws, eventually reining this in. Because once you're on top, you want to enforce the rules to make sure that nobody else can do the same thing as you can. And then shortly after this happened, the same thing played out in the United States. You saw the same process that Daniel mentioned earlier with lots of illegally published books, but it caused a huge amount of growth in reading, spurred the economy, and it kicked everything off. But once again, now when we look at modern copyright, a lot of it is supposed to encourage this economic growth, saying that the stricter these copyright laws, the more incentive we have in creating new work and distributing that to profit off of it. But if some of the greatest amounts of economic growth ever in history occurred, at least in large part because this information was freely available and that we were wantonly violating copyrights, whether it's the United States, whether it's Germany, whether it's Switzerland, then maybe the assumptions we make behind the economics of IP well, they don't exactly live up to it. And we'll explore a lot more cases where this is the case as we go forward in this episode. David, I think when you look at the history of economic development, it's clear that much economic development is stymied by harsh intellectual property rights. And just to bring us real quick back to that James Watt example, we mentioned how after his patent on the steam engine expired, production of steam engines skyrocketed. And it wasn't just the production of his specific steam engine, but a whole host of new applications for this idea opened up. And there are many reasons for that. Watt was so notorious for preventing would-be inventors from encroaching on his market that many inventors who had superior steam engine models refused to introduce them to the market until after his patent expired. But another important aspect of the story is that it goes beyond even that idea that Watt benefited at the expense of everyone else. Because even Watt himself was harmed by this patent system. Besides the energy, of course, that he spent litigating as opposed to actually inventing, he could not even develop his own engine to its full potential because one of the main things he needed, this rotational motion component, 
which is something that's probably the first thing that comes to mind when we think about an engine is its ability to rotate something. He couldn't do this because another inventor had a patent on cranks and flywheels. And when Watt's patent finally did expire, sales for his own engines actually increased dramatically, even as his monopoly power fell away, because not only were his engines distinct and of better quality than those being turned out by an influx of new market entrants, but his engines could now be applied to a much broader range of applications, which expanded the overall demand for them in general. And I think you alluded to the fact that there's this process going on of closing off markets and closing off economic development and trying to capture control of markets through this monopoly intellectual property protection. And we see that play out in international trade. You know, rich countries like the United States, Great Britain, Germany, they got that way so much from these very protectionist economies, protecting their own markets, but disregarding the intellectual property of other markets and other countries. But now that they've established themselves as a global power, We see them turning around and looking at other countries that are still in development and preventing them from doing the same things that got their economy to where it is today in the form of free trade agreements, for example, and many other tools. Okay, okay. okay. Lots and lots of history here. And uh, ultimately, there were international agreements created between these different states so they could all enforce patents together. Things like the Berne Convention, which not everybody agreed on at first, but was eventually mostly ratified by the majority of the world by the end of the 20th century, had a lot of ideas from these French, um, combining it with ideas of the British and then lots of other people, and ultimately applied more or less today as our standard of copyright, um, or at least the bare minimum of how strict copyright should be. And you can make copyright more intense than this, but you can't make it less intense. And we'll talk about this ratchet theory later on. So I want to fast forward quickly. Uh, In the United States, copyright kept getting longer and longer. We saw the introduction of something called the Copyright Act of 1976, which uh, codified their use, which allowed people to use copyrighted things outside of copyright in certain very specific ways. And there are lots of misconceptions about fair use. This episode is not going to get into them at all. But the concept of, well, there are some times that it's okay to use copyrighted content. And we need to make sure that there is a legal definition of what that is, was an important jump forward in copyright theory. Um, Once again, trying to fix the mistakes that have been made with copyright ever since the licensing of these printing presses first occurred, you know, in the 15th century, hundreds of years ago. We've been trying to fix these mistakes ever since, and recently in the past few decades, because of something that we'll talk about in just a second, have been just making the problem worse. But uh, quickly, the 1976 Copyright Act extended dramatically the length of copyrights, and it was amended in 1998 with something called the Sonny Bono Act. And this is where the story is today. This is where the story gets interesting. This is, yes, this is where the story gets interesting. So remember, if we go back to the original statute of Anne in 1710, where a copyright was granted for 14 years past the creation of peace of whatever it is. Or in early France, where after the author created it, it was extended for their entire life, plus five years later extended to 10 years. Well, lots of time has passed and people realize that owning IP is extremely valuable. And they've been lobbying the United States, various legislative bodies around the world for the right to extend that value for longer and longer times. So in 1998, under Bill Clinton, we passed a bill called the Copyright Term Extension Act, also known as the Sonny Bono Copyright Term Extension Act also known as the Mickey Mouse Protection Act, somewhat derogatorily. Um, How does Mickey Mouse fit into that, David? Well, so what this bill did was it increased by 20 years to a total of 95 years the copyright length of products created by corporations. So now if Daniel and I, we have a corporation. 
You mean like Ashes, Ashes Incorporated, C Corp, going to the top, David? Exactly. So we're Ashes, Ashes Incorporated, C Corp, going to the top. And we are creating an awesome podcast show. And unlike what we do right now, we decide, okay, you know what? We don't want to give these shows away, license them under Creative Commons so people can do whatever they want with them. Instead, we're going to be like, you know what? Fuck you, listeners. We're going to take control of this so that we can profit off our amazing show as much as we can. And so the act of publishing this show. So once you, the listener, is able to download it for the first time on July 19th, 2018, well, the copyright for this episode will be extended 95 years past the publication of this episode. So long after Daniel and I are dead, speak for yourself, you David. still won't be able to do anything with this show without our permission or without the permission of whoever owns Ashes, Ashes, Inc. at that time. 95 years. And if that's not enough, if we didn't have Ashes, Ashes Incorporated, if we were just publishing this independently as authors, well, the copyright of this episode would be extended 70 years past our death. So say maybe, Daniel, we've got another 30 years to live before the world collapses. But in this post-apocalyptic hellscape, copyright for some reason still exists. Well, that means a hundred years from now, I can dream. Well, people will finally be able to reuse our episode. And a lot of the motivation for extending this law to these ridiculous lengths was the protection of one iconic character. Ah, so this is where Mickey Mouse comes in. This is the Mickey Mouse Protection Act. That's exactly right. So to look at exactly why this occurred, with jump back to 1928, which is when Mickey Mouse first appeared in Steamboat Willie. And when this bill was introduced, the copyright on Mickey Mouse on the Steamboat Willie cartoon was about to expire. And that means that Mickey Mouse and this original portrayal of him would have been owned by everyone. It would have entered the public domain. And as much as Mickey Mouse has already belonged to all of us because of the culture that we all share together where Mickey Mouse is an important component, well, now we would have quite literally owned Mickey Mouse and his portrayal, at least in this piece. Of course, Mickey Mouse is trademarked. We can't do things with its logo and stuff. And that exists outside of the constitutionally protected rights of copyright and patent, which is a single line in the Constitution, sets aside the ability to create this, whereas trademark is in the uh, controlled in commerce and stuff. It's not in the Constitution. That's This is getting too legal for this conversation. But Disney and other rights holders lobbied Congress extremely heavily, try and push this date off as far as they could. So here we are. It's coming up, actually. So in 2024, Mickey Mouse is going to re-enter the public domain, even though he was about to expire and enter it. And so we'll see if at that point they try and push this copyright date back even farther. But what that means is from the creation of this new Copyright Act in 1998, we have had no new publications enter the public domain in the United States for almost two decades. And so January 1st, 2019, we're going to see for the first time a new amount of music, of art, of creativity enter the public domain so that we can all once again own all this information together collectively like it should have been in the first place almost 100 years later. Assuming, David, that some new legislation doesn't come along in the meantime that extends it once again? Well, naturally. And if history is any sort of evidence, that might very well occur. So let's look for a second at what happened. So if we look back for one moment to the Statute of Anne, where the original purpose of copyright was to encourage the consumption of art and culture, and we look now where we're locking up this culture behind 100-year-long copyright lengths, give or take, you can see how drastically the protection of IP has changed, where it's no longer about defending creators, about making sure that people are guaranteed to be able to access this culture once the amount of time passes so someone can profit off of it, and instead shifting the power from creators, from consumers, to publishers to companies like Disney, to the big music labels, to the people that lobbied for the creation of these bills in the first place. David, we've been dwelling on a lot of past history, so let me just bring us real quick into the modern time. 
In 2016, Fox aired an episode of Family Guy that included a clip of the cartoon character sitting down and playing a video game from the 1980s. But the clip that Fox used in the show came from a YouTube video someone had uploaded seven years prior in 2009. And then, just after Fox aired this Family Guy episode, the company notified YouTube that this individual's video, which they had taken and then put into their TV show, was copyright infringement. And so YouTube took it down. And this is, of course, an instance where YouTube and Fox's artificial intelligence algorithms found the connection and notified YouTube automatically. But this happens all the time. And it's a big problem because so many would-be independent creators, artists, musicians, or just people who want to share their perspective on the world get shut down for what is increasingly an impossible-to-navigate copyrighted world. Well, I mean, this has happened to you, Daniel, hasn't it? Yes, David. I don't. I guess you've heard the news. I actually have a, a small little YouTube channel. I don't use it very much. But when I was traveling a couple of years ago, I made some videos. And to provide a little background music, what I did is I put some of my own music this is this is music Daniel composed, recorded, and then published. Ultimately, it, it's it's all things his entire creation. There's no label or anybody else involved with it. It's just Daniel. Yeah, that's right, David. Uh, I made some piano music when I was in high school. I recorded it onto a CD, and then I uploaded it to an online service that that just registered it. And so, in some of my YouTube videos, I put this music in them. And a couple of days go by, and I get an email <laughs> saying that oh, one of the videos I uploaded. Well, it violates some copyright infringement. And I scroll through and I look and I'm trying to find out who am I violating here? Who am I stealing from with my video? And I look and there it is, Daniel Forkner. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're not the first artist that it's occurred to and not even just small artists. So Paul McCartney of Beatles fame, I mean, you don't get much bigger than that, had to sue for access to his own music that was owned first by Michael Jackson's estate then sold off to Sony. And trying to be able to access his music in order to do things with it, he had to contact the lawyers of Sony, go through all this stuff. It's music that he made, you know? He wrote this, but here he is spending time working with lawyers, working in this legal environment, litigating to try and access his own creation. It's crazy. Well, and I think one of the big problems with all this automation that has been integrated with copyright infringement is that it's on the individual to prove that they had a right to share something. And that burden doesn't fall on the large company to prove why it should be taken down in the first place. And it seems pretty clear to me, David, that this kind of automatic takedown of any video has to be a violation of free speech and fair use because there's no need to prove something is a legal violation before removing it. Well, so all of this emerges from something called the DMCA, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. And I don't want to get too far into it because this sort of deviates. It is related to copyright and its enforcement online. Um, and it's very dense and, and technical. But the short version is, is that websites aren't liable for the copyrighted content that people post onto their websites as long as when requested via, it's called a DMCA takedown notice. When somebody files one of these things saying somebody's using my copyrighted work, please remove it. And then they actually do remove it. Then um, they're not liable for the violations. So this is what allows sites like YouTube to exist in the first place, because there's no way they could possibly afford all the copyright violations that occur on there every single second of the day. But what this actually means is in the, the application of this, because so much content is uploaded to these websites, they can't police for copyright violations all the time. And that violates the DMCA. They need to be actively looking for these things. 
And so they've introduced this automatic filtering technology. And this is what you got hit with on your videos, where it automatically detected video that was entered into its database by somebody. And it's not always the rights holders that enter these into their database. Sometimes it's people who just are looking to profit. They're scam artists, basically. They upload things that belong to other people, but they upload them first. And the process of reversing the ownership of this, as far as YouTube understands, is extremely complicated, takes a long time, a lot of paperwork, a lot of conversations with a very small YouTube staff that doesn't care, isn't educated on these topics. And in video monetization, you have a matter of weeks for your video to take off if, it, if it's exploding right then. And you don't have months to argue over the legality of a video that you own the rights to. And so by the time it's all done, you know, your video is, is basically useless at that point. This plays out in people copywriting all sorts of stupid things. So somebody copyrighted white noise, which is the static noise that you hear. It's not copyrightable, but somebody filed it into this database anyway. And now all sorts of videos that use this generic public domain free sound are instead being pulled down. They're tagged by this copyright software. They get a ding on their account. The video is demonetized or at the worst case, restricted in certain countries that could be played or removed entirely. And this overzealous application of copyright is stealing all sorts of content that should belong to all of us that we should all be able to enjoy and use as a piece of culture from every single one of us. Well, David, this copyright protection doesn't just cover YouTube videos and things like that, but extends into the realm of science, which is ironic because that initial copyright protection that you mentioned in the history of the Statute of Anne, part of the reason it came about was to not lock science up, but to allow it to proliferate among people. But today we find that academic journals and the research that scientists do is locked behind very expensive academic journals, which has turned the research they produced, which used to be considered a public good, into what is in large part a private market. And real quick, I do want to touch on this part about owning academic research and other data, because so much of the justification behind intellectual property rights hinges on its benefits to society. But this monopolizing of scientific research in no way benefits society. And I guess the argument for doing so is that, you know, the revenue that journals can make can help them become more prestigious and therefore more credible. And in some way that helps further the scientific goals by providing a platform by which we know we have a trusted source. The problem with that, of course, is that we can't access that platform unless we have thousands of dollars. But I think there's a very clear example of how locking this research behind paywalls does not in any way benefit society because a lot of innovation historically has occurred not from people in specialized and trained fields, but from ordinary people with curiosity and free time. So in his book at home, Bill Bryson looks briefly at the history of the clergy class in Victorian era England. And he found a quantifiable difference between contributions to society from the clergy and those in specialized and technical scientific fields. Specifically, according to their representation in the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography, there are between five and ten times more people in the clergy profession who contributed to society than scientists, physicists, inventors, and economists. And that's because the clergy was a unique class of educated people. The Church of England required a college degree, and they had a guaranteed income since the Queen mandated that farmers pay clergy annual sums based on their property value. And they also had a whole lot of free time since church responsibilities were very small. And so many clergy took advantage of this privileged position to explore their curiosity alongside the research of the day in ways that led to many of the discoveries that benefit modern society. 
Well, what's interesting about this, I think, is it really exposes one of the flaws in the way that we're supposed to think about IP. We're saying that people only innovate or create or research or discover or whatever it is that you want to say that this IP is about because they're doing so for some sort of incentive. And if they aren't guaranteed that incentive, they have no need to create. And I mean, I, I don't want to do this full rant right here because this is something I've been thinking about a lot as somebody who is creative, who all my friends are artists or writers or uh, musicians, whatever it is, they're all creating and most to all of them aren't making any sort of money off their creations. But even in, in the scientific fields like we're talking about here, Daniel, I mean, apparently all it turns out is lots of people are interested in things that they want to do. I mean, look at us here. We spend hours and hours working on this show every single week, putting it out, releasing it without copyright specifically, not profiting off of it, because it's something that we're, we feel like we have to do because we're driven to do it. And in the same way that these researchers in the past, these clergymen, they didn't have to worry about providing for themselves. They had their food taken care of, they had their housing taken care of, and instead what they had was free time. And I mean, some of their time was devoted to chores around whatever institution they were staying in, making sure it was running and stuff, but it still leaves you hours every day in order to pursue the things that you think are important. And the things that they thought important were art, science, they wrote poetry, they wrote literature. They discovered the secrets of the universe at a rate that's far higher than those who were professionally employed to do so at the time. Yeah, let me give you some more examples. Uh, Reverend John Mitchell, he made unbelievable contributions to astronomy and physics. He was the first person to suggest the existence of black holes. He helped discover Uranus, and he devised a way to weigh the Earth. And he discovered these black holes, these astronomical things, in the 1700s. Like, this is not modern, but that's how far ahead he was at the time. There was a rural clergyman named Edmund Cartwright who created the power loom, one of the most important inventions of the Industrial Revolution. Another reverend taught himself linguistics and created the world's first Icelandic dictionary. And many, many more became authorities on everything from dinosaurs to dog breeding and even one who invented the submarine. Many modern scientific fields owe a great deal to these people who had nothing but free time, money, and some curiosity. I think even the foundation of modern genetics was discovered by a priest working in his spare time. Yeah, and so I guess the point is that perhaps those who have the potential to make the biggest contributions to society are not necessarily those employed in some profession like biology or economics, but could be anybody with curiosity and the opportunity to pursue that curiosity. But if we seal all research away from the public, locked behind steep paywalls that only large institutions can afford to access, that opportunity is severely limited relative to its potential. I mean, even on this show, we read a lot of journals to research these episodes, and we encounter paywalls constantly. And luckily, we still have friends and contacts who are in grad school um, who can, uh, I guess, illegally release these papers to us and send them to us, again, violating the copyright of these journals. But that's the only way that we can get some of this research. And especially in an area that's as collaborative as science, science is built on the development of others. It's not something that you independently go into a garage and you invent a new field, unless you're Isaac Newton or Leibniz or somebody who just happens to stumble across a new field. I mean, that, this doesn't really happen for the most part. And even their, their developments were built on the work of many others who came before them. It's a collaborative, incremental process. And to lock some of these developments behind paywalls, whether it's a journal article or whether it's actual patented or copyrighted research, slows down the progress of humanity far more than it encourages the investment in the first place. People want to learn. They want to build. They want to work towards a better future. And when you're locking this up, you're limiting our ability to do that. But I think once again, I'm getting ahead of ourselves. 
And in fact, this protection doesn't just stymie innovation and creativity, but it literally costs lives, David. And before you accuse me of being dramatic, you know, I want to provide a concrete example, which comes from the realm of pharmaceuticals, medicine, and the way that economic powers in the West try to impose free trade agreements on countries around the world to limit their access to affordable medicine. And it all comes down to this intellectual property. And so in our earlier episode about debt, we talked about how South Africa broke the chains of apartheid when Nelson Mandela and his party, the ANC, rose to power and replaced the white supremacist government and achieved political victory for South Africans who for so many years had been oppressed and discriminated against. And what we found is that South Africa remained a highly discriminated country. And it was because of the economic forces at play that the world imposed on South Africa. And one of the examples of that was how when Nelson Mandela tried to provide cheap, affordable access to AIDS medication to people who desperately needed it, well, the United States in particular resisted that, saying that it violated World Trade Organization agreements, specifically by licensing generic AIDS drugs or importing cheaper AIDS drugs from other countries that were not intended for the South African market. The charge against South Africa was that it was violating these intellectual property protections for the pharmaceutical industry. And at the time in the late 90s, South Africa was going through a AIDS crisis. It had the highest number of people living with AIDS in the entire world, with some 20% of adults having the virus. But the only drugs available at the time were cost more than $1,000 a month, which was so far out of reach for the majority population, which had an average annual income of just $2,600. That's annual income. The South African health minister at the time said, quote, I think the lives of our people overrides everything else. We are not intending to bust any patents. We're not intentionally breaking any treaties. All we want to do is give health services to the people who are poor in this country and the people who have been denied those health services for centuries, end quote. And of course, that minister said that in defense of their desire to import cheaper AIDS medicines from other markets. So long story short, South Africa tried to introduce this legislation, but U.S. pharmacy companies sued and the U.S. government put pressure on South Africa. And when the public became aware, it resulted in a public relations nightmare for the current U.S. government, which responded by announcing alongside the World Trade Organization that going forward, they would allow sub-Saharan countries to be a little bit more flexible in terms of the trade agreements in responding to this AIDS crisis. But in the same year that they were negotiating this with South Africa, Brazil also ran into tensions with international trade when it was responding to its own AIDS crisis in the late 90s. The U.S. also filed complaints against Brazil, uh, which it withdrew a year later due to even more criticism. And all this has created a global debate on how the World Trade Organization should respond to developing countries that face public health emergencies. Poor countries want the ability to use this parallel importing and flexible licensing to create generic drugs or bring cheaper drugs into their markets and save lives. But on the other hand, pharmacy companies want their patents protected no matter what. 
Well, it doesn't end just there in South Africa. I mean, we look at a lot of things that happened with South Africa and apartheid in the past saying, well, we've learned from our mistakes since then, and now we're working towards a better world. Like you said, the WTO has uh, stepped back on some of their enforcement of this because they recognize there's a need for public health. So maybe we're making progress, right? Maybe. Well, that maybe is a good answer because these problems continue in almost the same exact forms. And even in the United States, under what we consider the more liberal, progressive presidents like Obama. And this almost the exact same story played out in India under Obama's term. So in 2012, the Indian government sought the creation of a generic cancer drug that could be used as a cheaper alternative to a very expensive drug sold by international pharmaceutical company Bayer. This move was instantly attacked by a U.S. official from the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, who criticized the Indian government's attempt to provide its citizens with a cheap way to access this life-saving treatment. And to boil down a lot of conversations back and forth to simple things, the Bayer drug cost $5,000 a month whereas this generic was only $150 a month. That's a big difference. Yeah, and because of this high cost on the original Bayer treatment, only 2% of the eligible patients that needed this drug in India were, were able to afford it from Bayer. And there's a couple ironic things about this example, and one is that India was taking advantage of uh, compulsory licensing to address a public health concern. And Something that became acceptable after that South African example. Exactly. The World Trade Organization actually added it to their list of exemptions on intellectual property. Um, compulsory licensing quickly is just when a company or patent holder or nation or whatever it is that owns this piece of IP is forced by some sort of um, legislative body or international agreement to provide it for a fixed licensing fee um, against their will because it's backed up by the power and violence of states. And so this is what happened in India's thing. This is what was introduced to the WTO agreements so that life-saving drugs could not be denied from people who needed them but couldn't afford them. And the ideas of patent and profit wouldn't get in the way of health and survival. But despite this fact, despite that India was allowed to do this under this exemption that the WTO has provided, the U.S. Patent Office testified to Congress that its highest goal was to prevent developing countries from any such license actually being deployed. And ironic is that Bayer isn't even an American company. But I guess it's not hard to see how protecting the profits of international corporations is in the broader interest of Western countries like the United States. Because the United States uses the application of the WTO of these economic bodies to wage economic war on groups in order to get them to do what they want. So just right now, the UN was trying to introduce this thing to say that it's not okay for um, babies to use formula. They should be trying to use mother's milk as much as possible. Um, Ecuador was going to introduce this health resolution. And many doctors had agreed with it. It had medical consensus. But the United States came in and threatened Ecuador not to do this with economic sanctions, with pulling out of military support. And other developing nations wanted to introduce this bill. And the U.S. kept going through, bullying each one of these nations, threatening them with economic attacks if they would step in. Because they thought the introduction of this resolution would hurt the sales of formula by American companies, even though there's direct evidence that these formula sales were hurting babies. And consequently hurting people that would grow up and be less healthy, less intelligent, whatever. But that doesn't matter because it cuts into the bottom line. Ultimately, Russia was able to introduce the resolution. We didn't attack them in the past. But I think it's a great example of how we wage economic war in order to further our own economic interests. And we apply this economic war through things like IP, most notably, and the trade agreements that bind IP. So we wanted to introduce very strict trade agreements with the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP. Trump pulled us out of it. It fell apart. But it would have introduced extremely strong copyright law enforcement around the world, along with a similar agreement that we were doing with Europe in order to be able to apply actions like this. It would have gotten rid of this compulsory license exemption. 
So once again, this goes back to when developing countries ignore patents in order to develop to save their people, like India is trying to do, even though they're doing it within the rules here. The players that are benefiting from this monopoly, in this case the United States, are going to do everything in their economic and military power in order to prevent that from happening. And it really exposes how this IP falls apart in terms of its idea, its core philosophical motivation, that it's supposed to be helping us, that it's supposed to be furthering art and science and making the world a better place. And instead highlights it that it's an economic grab in order to lock up culture, in order to lock up medicine, in order to lock up scientific progress behind profit walls. Where if you want to use these things and make the world a better place, then you better pay me a fee to do that. And as terrible as some of these practices are, not everyone in the pharmaceutical fields are terrible. (laughs) It's evil. Not everyone in the pharmaceutical industries is evil, David. I mean, I think I remember reading that the polio vaccine, which saves so many lives, was made possible by the initial inventor who released it to the public as opposed to trying to monopolize it and profit from it. Yeah, so so briefly, John Salk, the creator of this vaccine, and it's one of the very first vaccines that we have, uh, it is a polio vaccine. Polio at the time was a very, it still is, a very deadly, disabilitating disease. It killed hundreds of thousands of people every single year, and it, mostly children. And this vaccine stopped that. It killed the disease in its tracks. We've deployed it worldwide, and polio is almost eradicated at this point. Um, it's made a, a comeback in recent years because of cutbacks in the deployment program, in, in um, concerns of vaccines, and also meddling of the U.S. State Department, where people don't trust American deployment of vaccines, which is another story. But this was made possible because once John Salk created this vaccine, the organization that he was working with, a nonprofit group, they decided not to copyright it, not to patent it. Instead, they released it into the world. And he famously said, can you patent the sun? And the idea that these discoveries that we have around us aren't something that can be owned by man, but instead belong to all of us collectively together, especially when they forward us as a species, as a civilization, as a community worldwide. And a creation of a vaccine for a disease that causes so much suffering and tragedy around the world, well, that's certainly something that should belong to everyone, that should be deployed as easily and quickly as possible. And deployed it was in large part because licensing fees could be avoided. John Salk and the organization that he worked for lost out on billions of dollars that they could have had, estimates as high as 7 to $10 billion in the deployment of this vaccine. And instead, they gave that as a gift to all of us here. Well, I mean, devil's advocate real quick, David, maybe this one doctor got lucky in the invention of the polio vaccine, but many drugs today are very expensive to produce. And that's the main argument from the pharmaceutical industry of why it needs to protect its patents, because without the profits that it can make, it wouldn't be justified in spending all the money to develop these complicated drugs. Sure. This is the example, the argument that's always made by pharmaceutical industries and by economists saying that we have to balance the public need, that is the need for health of cures, and the financial motivation for somebody to develop these cures. And that is the guarantee that if they create a cure or, or something that produces symptoms for chronic illness, whatever it is, that there's motivation for them to create it in the first place, to spend billions of dollars researching, deploying this, and ultimately getting into the hands after guaranteeing that it's safe of patients. And that's expensive, and they need to be guaranteed that they can make that money back. But, of course, this is a double-edged sword, so it means that, consequently, when they do the math and they say that, well, after we research this and we look at how long the patent's going to last and how long we think this drug will be effective, because some drugs, like antibiotics, might only be effective for a set number of years before the diseases that they're treating develop antimicrobial resistance, like we've discussed in previous episodes, Well, then there's no financial motivation to create this. And there's no financial motivation to create cures for diseases that have a small number of victims. 
there's more financial motivation for drugs that help with symptoms than there are with drugs that cure diseases completely. And so we see that very quickly the incentives of the market are extremely distorted, where we should only be concerning about how can we help as many people as possible. Or instead, proxying that question and saying, how can we pay somebody to help as many people as possible? And that extra step there doesn't make any sense to me because this is something that we should instead be publicly funding. All this money that's wasted on the profit for these pharmaceutical companies, all this money that's invested into media advertising these drugs, which is something that I personally benefit as someone who's done work for the pharmaceutical industry and, and made money off of that, I always feel guilty about this. I feel guilty about the money that I make from these projects. And I end up sending that to groups, to individuals that I think it's going to help out more in order to assuage the guilt that I carry with me from this work. But we don't need this. This is a huge waste of the resources that instead should be invested back into this health. And we should be considering that instead of having these mega pharmaceutical industries that take up all this additional work and investment in order to have these distorted incentives in the products they're creating, maybe this is something that we should fund publicly. That the cures they create are generic not patented and open to the entire world to increase our health as a species, as a global community. And I, I think any sort of other way of approaching this problem is just a compromise of trying to fit in a preconceived notion about the world into something that sort of fits this actual genuine need that we have. When the answer is very simple, collectively, we should fund this because we're the ones who all will inherit the progress that's made here. And anything that steps in between that slows that progress down and makes all of our lives and health that much worse. You know, what's crazy to me is that even research that is publicly funded right now is still subject to intellectual property rights. Meaning if I'm a university or a company and I get a grant from the government that is paid for by taxpayers to develop some new innovation. Well, once I finally create that, now I can slap my own uh, protection on it, which kind of flies in the face of, of this argument, which is protection is supposed to incentivize this innovative activity by compensating creators for the cost of the creation. But if the public is funding something from the beginning, there's no reason to protect it unless you're just blatantly trying to hoard profits. Which is exactly what we're doing. But David, you say industries couldn't exist without the complex IP protections that enable the innovation of not just creators and artists, but rather of corporations, of the patents and designs they make. Well, I say, uh, looking back at you, I say, you imbecile, you, you don't know what you're talking about. Because in fact, there are several industries, several major industries that are basically entirely absent or predominantly absent of IP. And one of the biggest of these is the largest creative industry on earth, something that we've dug into in depth, and that's the fashion industry. Yeah, this is so fascinating to me, David, because it's all around us, but I never noticed it. I mentioned in the very beginning how on the forefront of my mind, if we're trying to add some kind of media to this show is, hey, are we violating some kind of copyright? You know, it's very integrated into the way we think about creating something. You know, if I want to add a YouTube video, I'm automatically thinking, is any music I add to it in violation? If I want to write a paper, I'm immediately thinking, am I plagiarizing someone? Am I going to get in trouble? It's so embedded in the way we think about creative activity, except for the thing that we interact with the most every single day, and that's the clothing that we wear, which has absolutely no copyright protection at all. I mean, there is some intellectual property protection in the form of trademarks, but the actual designs, the actual creativity is not. And what we see is not a hindrance of creativity. 
we don't see a lack of innovation in the fashion industry. In fact, we see the exact opposite, even in a bad way in terms of the fast fashion industry, where something new comes out every single week. And to be clear, there are notions of intellectual property in fashion, but they're limited. So things like trademark. Um, logos are trademarked. You cannot reproduce somebody else's logo in your work uh, without violating their trademark, which is why a lot of fashion groups will make uh, designs that are basically just their logo repeated a bunch of times. These are high-end designers in order to get around the fact that then nobody can steal this pattern or whatever. But the bulk of fashion, the designs that we see, the colors, the cuts, the way that clothes drape or hang or move or flow, the fabrics that we use, all of this is not copyrighted. And instead of stymieing the growth of creativity in this industry, in fact, fashion is probably the largest and most vibrant creative community and industry in the in the world. Like Daniel says, they're constantly designing things. Uh, there are constantly new seasons coming out all the time. And instead of limiting creativity, it's in fact forced it to happen because you always have to be developing the new look moving forward because as soon as you design something, it's starting to trickle down the pattern. The high-end designers create a new look. Then it goes to the mid-designers. Then it goes down and eventually you find it for $8 at your favorite fast fashion. And by the time it reaches there, it's already been developed. It's out of date. And somebody has something new that they've worked on. And this encourages the creation of new ideas, of new content, of new art all the time, instead of like defenders of IP would say, stopping it or preventing it from happening at all. And because all this new fashion is coming out, it's kind of this reinforcing feedback loop where it creates even more innovation because designers now have more choices to choose from. There's more tools in their arsenal. Designers call it sampling, where they take someone else's work, they put it on a mannequin, and now they're trying to figure out how to reinvent it or do something different with it, combine different elements. And what's interesting is that designers have pointed out that the industry benefits from both top-down and bottom-up design. So not only are famous designers coming up with their own original ideas, but also the industry looks at how people use fashion creativity creatively in their everyday lives. They're looking at how trends form among people to come up with new ideas to emulate that into more designs. And it's very clear how absurd intellectual property really is when you imagine the logical conclusion of embedding it with the fashion industry. So this means that we would see the suit as a copyrighted design that no one else could use. We would see the t-shirt as a design that no one else can use. We would see the dress and the vest and the blouse and every single piece of garment that we have owned in a certain cut by some fashion house somewhere that specializes in the production and licensing of that particular piece of garment. And David, that would just be ridiculous. And maybe even bigger than the fashion industry when it comes to raw dollars. But the information technology industry is built almost entirely on freely licensed open source software unencumbered by intellectual property laws. Almost every single piece of technology that you interact with, your phone, whether it's Android or iOS, your laptop, whatever websites that you go to, they're all, at least in part, and some entirely, built on open source software. So this movement to create technology, the GNU Linux operating system, the bits of code that we write that run the internet, the very code itself that the internet and these things are written in, these are all designed by individuals, sometimes as hobbies, sometimes for companies that pay them to. But then once they've been made, they've been released into the world. So anybody can take it, modify it, make it better, improve it, fix things, fork it, make it their own, and then pass that back out into the world so somebody can keep doing that. And what we've seen instead of people not creating things because they don't think they're going to be paid, but rather an explosion in technology, an explosion in innovation, 
and in the creation of new industries that wouldn't have existed in the first place. Highly profitable industries, including companies like Google, like Apple, that are built and only made possible because these pieces of software are free to use, develop, remix, remake, and build into a better thing. Without the ideas that people like Richard Stallman put forward that said that this code that we write, we give out to anybody to use because that is the only way that we can have progress. That is the fastest way to improve this technology. And that is the only way that we can make these technologies from a small niche thing into something that explodes and runs worldwide, unified, for the betterment of all of us. And the results are obvious in front of us. The internet, the fact that it works at all, is that it was built on these open technologies. Our mobile devices, the fact that they work at all, is because they were built on these open technologies. And then spreading out from that, our cars, our TVs, all these things are built on, at least in part, open ideas. And if we lock these ideas up in licenses, in private IP, so that people aren't allowed to use it or look inside or see what's working, then our modern technological world, quite frankly, would not exist at all. It's only been made possible through open access. And the times that some of these companies who benefit from these dramatic amounts of open access, companies like Apple, companies like Google, end up locking up bits and pieces of their own software, like Apple famously patented the rectangle. Well, David, I mean, come on. Compared to the triangle, that's like 33% more lines. <laughs> well, I guess that was the that was enough of a justification for the U.S. patent offices. And eventually, Apple did give up that patent. But it prevented other people from making devices in a particular shape. And it stymied innovation and development. And once they had finally released this or agreed not to, then we could see instead development occur once more. And a lot of these IPs are about that. Taking Monopoly, locking it up and saying nobody else is allowed to develop it until I've made enough money to cover my investment and then some. As our current patents extend farther and farther, as our current copyrights extend even crazier times into the future. Well, that time where we're supposed to just recoup our costs, our investment, and then profit after that, that's long gone. Because it's no longer about protecting the individual or the creator or whoever that is, but it's about guaranteeing that the publisher or the license holder are able to profit for as long as possible. And in doing so, hold back culture and technological development. But there are groups that are fighting against all this. Groups like Creative Commons, the Free Software Foundation. Creative Commons, David being the uh, thing that we release our episodes under. These groups and many other open culture organizations are trying to push back against the constant push forward from the monopolies that hold these licenses to try and give us a more open future where we can create without the encumbrance of worrying about licenses, or worrying about copyright violations, about being sued for using someone else's patent, and instead develop and move forward without all this additional baggage and, and litigations and whatever it is, focusing instead our time on the actual act of creating. Discussing the merits of intellectual property often falls into this argument, like we said at the very beginning, about you know incentives and benefits to society. But we can think about it in much simpler terms, and that's that intellectual property turns an idea or a concept or some abstract thing into private property. And the result is that not only is our culture locked up behind a fence, but so is our history. And perhaps one of the most absurd examples of this is in the way that the speeches of Martin Luther King Jr. is locked behind this private property fence, and it is not accessible to anyone without a license or without paying a fee or without express written permission by the owners, which happened to be at this time King's estate, which is mostly his family. And so we see things like directors who want to create 
movies based on the biography of Martin Luther King Jr. can't even use his speeches in their film. Meanwhile, car companies can pay a sum to have Martin Luther King's speech overlaid on their Super Bowl commercials in a very ironic twist of what Martin Luther King Jr. preached and the very sermons that are used in these commercials to promote commercial products. And I was thinking about this, David, uh, this ability to own a piece of history, the ability to own a piece of culture. And we look at this so much from the money perspective, but just think about the implications for a second. What this means is that if Martin Luther King's estate wanted to sell this private property, this piece of history to, let's say, a white supremacist billionaire or a group of people, well, they would be perfectly justified in the current legal framework for doing so. And if this white supremacist billionaire took Martin Luther King Jr.'s speeches, barred everyone else from using it except those that wanted to twist it in a certain way to fit this ideology, well, they too would be perfectly justified in doing that. And I think something is very seriously wrong with the way we treat our history and our culture when we allow it to be sold off like this to the highest bidder, when we allow it to be walled off and protected and controlled by a small group of people who can now use, abuse, exclude, and otherwise do whatever they want with something that should belong to all of us. The power of culture and of history and of these products that we create and release in this IP world, whether it's literature, whether it's music, whether it's art, is the effects it has on each of us. That's what makes a piece of art or creation significant, how it touches us. And consequently, these examples don't live in a vacuum. You don't read something, acknowledge it happened, and then never think about it again. The process of experiencing somebody's creation changes you a little bit. And it does that multiplied by however many times people come and interact with it. And our culture and society do with however many people bring that idea or thought or feeling or emotion into our larger world. The process of creating is the process of interacting with individuals and with our culture. It's not something that happens in a small walled garden where you create something. It exists as this amorphous idea until you put that copyright notice down where you manifest this metaphysical thing into this physical symbol, copyright C. I've cast a magic spell and here it is. It's protected from the thoughts of others and I can interact with it solely as, you know, a, a brick of gold. But a brick of gold you can lock up in a safe and no one touches it. It doesn't have any influence outside of that. But as soon as you release an idea into the world, it starts changing that world. It starts changing people. It starts affecting everything. And to say that we can lock this up, shut it off, limit how this happens, is, to me, it seems almost like a crime against nature, about how we interact with each other as a society and culture. I want to I I do a stupid example here to explore this. I mean, there are no stupid examples on Ashes, Ashes, Day. <laughs> well, just wait. Uh, I mean, I think if we have to pick two very obvious pieces of culture that we've interacted with over the past few decades, at, at least here in the United States, I mean, nothing stands out more than for the slightly older Star Wars. And for people around our age, maybe Harry Potter, okay? All right, David. These movies, these, these books have permeated our culture. They've affected how we talk about things, how we think about things. I can't tell you how many political articles I've read recently where somebody brings up Harry Potter examples or compares somebody, some, some judge or politician to a Harry Potter character. And I'm not always clear why somebody decided to make this example, other than the fact that when you compare somebody to this shared experience that we all have, it unifies us for a moment. We can all understand what somebody's trying to say. And that's because culture and the items that we create, like I said, belong to all of us. 
That's what makes them significant in the first place. That's what, in terms of the economist side, give them value. But to say that we can limit how we're supposed to interact with these by only consuming officially licensed ideas, by not creating our own things, things like fan fiction, which could be its own episode by itself, but the direct way that it violates these conversations. In the same way a child grows up imagining themselves a Jedi, experiencing this thing that exists only in officially licensed form from Disney, how can we cut off our myths and our cultures and say that they're owned by a certain corporation, Warner Brothers or Disney? Because that's what these are now. In the past, our myths, ideas, our religions, our folklore were something that were owned collectively by a group of people. It's what tied them together as their culture. It's what unified them and gave them a voice that people from disparate parts of the land could hear these stories and understand because they taught them something. Unified them. We all grew up hearing them. These are the fairy tales of our modern day. This is Harry Potter. This is Star Wars. And as silly as that sounds, it's true. But instead of in the past where this is something that we share and tell each other and collectively own and develop and modify and make new and rebuild and adapt the times so that we can build something better together, instead we have officially licensed canon episodes. Things that say, well, here's the official publication. Buy this if you want to experience it. Buy this movie ticket. Buy this book. If you want to create something off this idea because you want to improve this world or because you're so invested and you want to see something better happen with it, well, unless you have millions of dollars to purchase an official license to do this, you are operating outside of copyright and therefore liable to the full extent of the law. Like, what kind of fucked up story is that? I mean, this is taking away from us our shared experiences as humans. And, and I, I would love for J.K. Rowling to hear this episode at some point and to understand that as long as she leaves the IP of Harry Potter locked up to be owned by some corporation, and she's made her billions at this point, that she's denying the culture and unified mythology of an entire generation of people and their children and the generations going forward. And the legacy that we experience to make things great are the shared collective stories that continue being told because these stories are freely available and accessible. And I hope she hears this and she says, you know what, let's release this. Let's give Harry Potter to all the people that own it because collectively our experience and culture find this and make it what's great. And so it should be returned to the people that own it, which is all of us that experience it, embody it, live with it, and move it forward. And I, I mean, I'm not even a Harry Potter fan, but you can't deny how important this is to all of us. It makes me sick that we have our mythologies locked up behind these copyrights and licenses. And not just our mythologies, but all of our art. Every time you experience something, you see a video, you see a photo, you see a TV episode, whatever it is that you experience as media, it changes you, it affects you. You own part of it now. Or at least you would have in the past, but now it's locked off from you. It's only to be experienced in certain ways. And if you want to build with it and create something new, you can't do that. Well, David, I think you said it best in episode 31, which is every time a wall is built, a little bit of our freedom disappears. And of course, you were talking about physical walls, but I think the same thing applies here to what you're talking about. Walls around ideas, walls around culture, walls around who we are as society our history. Exactly. That's exactly right, Daniel. That's exactly what I'm trying to say with this. And the motivations for deploying these walls, like we've mentioned, have been, we need to incentivize people to create. Because without guaranteeing them that money from the licensing, then they're not going to want to. But that is so far from my experience as a creator, so far from the experiences of all my friends who are creators, whether they're scientific researchers, whether they're musicians, whether they're artists, whether they're dancers, whether they're fashion designers, all these people that I know and that I consider myself part of, we're compelled to create. It's not a choice. You make sacrifices to do it. You take jobs that you don't want because they'll give you the flexibility to write in your spare time. 
or to get access to that piece of equipment or that the odd hours let you play your shows and gigs. Whatever it is, people realize that creating to them is more important than any sort of economic return. It's a compulsion. It's the human spirit that drives us forward and that has spent thousands of years creating our culture. And in the same way, we take this culture that others have built before us and modify and make it better because it belongs to all of us. And that's what drives it forward. And the application of these IP laws denies the human spirit to create. It denies the culture that we all own. And it undoubtedly makes the world a more walled off, closed, restrictive, less colorful, less vibrant, less healthy place. Well, you know, what's interesting is that I think a lot of people recognize how intellectual property rights are used as a way to just create additional profits. I mean, when people talk about Star Wars now and and how Disney is the new owner of this cultural creation, people are quick to point out, oh, why did they do this in the movie? Why did they introduce this character? Oh, it's very clearly so they can sell more merchandise. And many people are quick to recognize that the profits at stake and owning a part of culture that people appreciate is very valuable. And maybe people just assume that that is what incentivizing creativity really is. And I think that's because we just haven't been thinking about what the alternative to that would be. I mean, what would a world look like if everything from Star Wars to Harry Potter to MLK speeches were in the public domain and freely available for anyone to use? I mean, in terms of Star Wars, that means more fan fiction. It means more creativity in terms of fans' ability to express what it means to them. And not just fans, but but companies and corporations. They can also develop their own interpretations. And you can pick whichever particular strain of Star Wars you think is the best and follow those. And I say that especially because so many people complain about the new Disney films. Well, what if you had an option between, you know, the Marvel Star Wars or, or the... The Warner Brothers Star Wars or the Sony Star Wars, and you can pick and choose your favorite parts and experience this world that you love so deeply. And even in terms of merchandise, right now, if I want to buy a Star Wars character, I have to go to the very limited selection that Disney chooses to produce. But if it was freely available, maybe, David, you could produce a little Star Wars miniature figurine that you could then sell to me online and I would appreciate it. And there's no telling what would develop as a result of that? Uh, And I think it's just another one of those problems where we can't see what could have been because we're stuck with this reality. But we need to think more in terms of the alternative. Locking our culture up is simply not the best option. So this brings us to the what can we do? And I think this entire show is about this philosophical conversation of what is culture? What is it to experience culture? What is it to own collectively the culture? And is it wrong to try and lock that up under the guise of innovation and incentivizing the creation of that culture in the first place? And I think the paradoxes and hypocritical nature of this conversation are quite evident, even without digging into the many examples of success without IP, of the times that IP have prevented the advancement of specific things, of the creation of art, or of forwarding humanity as a whole. One of the important things that we need to fix going forward, besides the way that we understand IP in general, is also the ratchet nature of IP laws. So that burned convention that we mentioned, the World Trade Organization's IP agreement called the Agreement on Trade-Related Aspects of Intellectual Property Rights, or TRIPS, these things set minimums of what IP should be. And those minimums are typically things like author's life plus 50 years. And that means that no nation who belongs to these organizations like the WTO or like the Berne Convention can do any sort of less restrictive IP than this. So if we want to move towards a more open, free, and vibrant future, 
then we need to dismantle either these trade agreements or these international IP agreements because they act as ratchets, preventing us only from moving to more restrictive legislation, only more restrictive IP worlds. And that's the opposite of where we need to go if we want to advance collectively. Even if the idea of minimum protections for things isn't going away, we can at least imagine a better world in which those minimums are much lower. I mean, in the current legal framework, it wouldn't be that unreasonable to give an inventor like James Watt, who creates the steam engine, a very limited protection for him to establish his business, maybe a a year or two, so that no one could immediately uh, take his idea from him. But certainly the current minimums are way too long. Right. I understand not everyone is an IP radical and they want some sort of limitations. But looking back to the statute of Anne, where we saw 14 years, that seems like a very reasonable compromise in terms of being able to regenerate a license to make money off of whatever it is you created and then move this into the open culture so that everyone can profit and move forward collectively with it. I think that's a reasonable compromise, though I would like to see a world where we collectively work and everything is open for all of us. And again, every time somebody comes to you and says, we need IP for development of economic growth, that it's what guarantees the creation of products, remind them to look at things like Germany, Switzerland, US in the past, but also look to the East, where in the past, Japan and Korea advanced through ignoring copyright and developing their own things. And currently, China's huge economic growth is spurred in large part by the willful copyright violations that occur throughout their industries, ignoring patents, ignoring copyright, and ignoring foreign limitations on intellectual property in order to spur and grow their homegrown industry. And it's had an amazing effect on that economy, much to the chagrin of Western nations. Or just take the most obvious example that would come to anyone which is Wikipedia, an online encyclopedia that was built by people all over the world who didn't make any money. And unlike an artist who, even if they're not going to make any money from creating a piece of art or a book, but can still enjoy some kind of fame as a result, well, the people that worked on Wikipedia don't get any of those benefits. If I write an article right now, I don't get any money and I don't get any recognition. Yet it has resulted in the most comprehensive, largest database of information and knowledge the world has ever seen. Those people do it without any remuneration. The benefit of that is that after this show, I can go look remuneration up on Wikipedia and find out what it means. (laughs) So we hope you walk away from this episode a little more open-minded, a little more encouraged by the potentials of an open culture where we can all come together and build something better. If you want to learn more about many of the topics that we have on this episode, you can do all of that as well as find a full transcript of this show on our website at ashesashes.org. A lot of time and research goes into making these episodes possible, and we will never use ads to support this show. So if you like it and would like us to keep going, you, our listener, can support us by giving us a review or sharing us with a friend. Also, we have an email address. It's contact at ashesashes.org. And we encourage you to send us your thoughts, positive or negative. We appreciate it. You can also find us on your favorite social media network at Ashes Ashes Cast or on Reddit at r slash Ashes Ashes Cast. Next week, we turn back to the environment to tackle a topic of life and death. But until then, this is Ashes Ashes. Bye. Bye-bye. Whatever.